Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam. And you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was bluer than a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the cold world, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. That arcade was my that church. I thought I was yeah, that was the whole thing. Uh, well, we should we should make it official here. Uh, welcome to the Game Dev Breakdown podcast. Uh, welcome, Matt Hill. How are you? I'm doing grand for a wednesday sir how are you that's our slogan around here good for a wednesday <laughs> it's a pretty it's good podcast for a wednesday <laughs> what are you playing what are you up to right now uh back for blood will be happening probably within the next hour i believe jimmy and i got eric and i don't know how that i don't know if he has game pass now or if he just went and bought it or what but he said games tonight i said this is what we're doing he said i'll download it now and i was like and then uh, maybe a buddy from work i don't know we'll see what happens but uh we played that last week uh phenomenal a lot of people are enjoying it the only complaint i've heard was just today somebody was like is anyone else having trouble finding uh, a lobby to play with like strangers Mm. to play with i don't know if that's a thing but uh this the the appeal of this series is to play it with friends i mean you know any character progression game like i don't jump into gta and just like go to free world that's insane to me but that's insane i play with buddies pretty well strictly only my wife and buddies and you know anybody else we try to beat up or lose to i have this long established relationship with the game neverwinter which Mm. is the dungeons and dragons mmorpg thing and what's special about that to me is you can play it on the xbox so and i i assume this is true on the playstation as well but you can play it on the console. You don't have to be like hunched over your computer in your dark office. I can be out in the living room <laughs> sort of participating in, in the world outdoors um, or outdoors from this office. I've played this game on and off now. I realize it's been a long, long time, like years and years now. And I, I like it. They've made a lot of changes to it, but I've had a lot of fun with it. I wish more MMOs would jump onto consoles. I, I'm i sure it's not the easiest thing to do, but man, I think it's it would probably be worth it, I imagine. Don't what other one would you like to see? Um, I've never gotten into World of Warcraft. I would maybe try that one. Uh, Amazon, their studio or whatever, just came out with some big RPG. I should know this. I should know exactly uh, what New it is. New World, but... right? Okay, fine. It probably yeah, is I New World. I think that's yeah. the one. I would play that on Xbox, but it's not on Xbox. So I'm not going to play it here at my PC, probably. I had a brief thought about that on the way home from work today. I don't know what sparked it, but they finally decided, you know, we're going to make the same game for different consoles or platforms or whatever you're playing on. Why not let them finally play together? You know, it's 2021 cross plays becoming a much more prevalent thing than it ever has been in the past. And then I was thinking, so what's going to keep people buying Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo mm-hmm. or is there a third part? I don't know if there's anything else out there. Anyway, what's well, going to keep people doing that? And I guess it's still, what's the word I'm looking for? They only make it for your exclusive IPs is the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. What's That's got to be the only thing nowadays to keep you loyal. Or I'm, I'm at the point in life, I reached it a long time ago. It was early college. I was just like, who cares? I just want to play games. I don't really care what I'm playing on. This is what I prefer to play on. But I just want to play games with my friends. Yeah, no, grown adults don't care who's got what what system i mean twitter would make you think otherwise but twitter is full of shit you know it's it's not really 
this isn't really a thing. It was this would be like a big crowd of people insisting that only flathead screwdrivers were legitimate. Yeah. And I refuse to use not even a hammer. I'm only using this flathead screwdriver for everything. <laughs> Time to put some peanut butter on my sandwich with my flathead screwdriver. Just use the correct tool right. for the job. If you want to play yeah. Spider-Man, get the PlayStation. You want right. to play Halo, get the Xbox. That's Who right. cares? Who cares? That's right. Just play. Have fun with your buddies. I'll say this. I think there's always going to be a market for consoles because Steam fixed a lot of this, but mm-hmm. PC will always have issues with yeah. installation and yeah. compat- compatibility. Console fixes so much of that, Cyberpunk notwithstanding. Right. But, I mean, that's an interesting story, and it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. I mean... Cyberpunk was so bad on PlayStation, they oh pulled it God. off the store and said, this is substandard, not good enough. Because console never has that problem. Not really. I've so. never known a game to actually refund so many people ever in the existence of games. Maybe you've heard or read something, but like hearing that from so many different people, it was just kind of like, wow. I can't think of any game where they went, anybody who bought this can have a refund. I've never right. heard of that. And, and there's some stinkers out there. Hello, Eternal Sonata. <laughs> Just out of the back pocket. Here it is again. <laughs> it's a card he carries with him. I played Eternal Sonata. I'm one of the it's, seven people on yeah, Earth who it was played awful. that game. I didn't mind it a bit. I <sighs> played it because I was doing one of the first versions of like an early type of Game Pass, which mm. was Blockbuster's like by mail service. Which I remember this. They tried it right before they died. It was actually very good. Uh, not the game, the service was. And I was playing anything I could. I was going through games like crazy, and I was having a great time. I really liked it, and I went, yeah, let's let's take a week and play this random, yeah. unusual JRPG thing that's going on here. <laughs> and it wasn't that bad. I've played worse. So It's so funny you brought a Blockbuster. I also had that thought earlier today. I, was, I had this random thought. Me and my buddy, I was definitely in high school. We got out of the car. Truck right off a uh, North Belt West. There used to be a Blockbuster right there. If you're local to the area, if not, who cares? And and I just remember these two kids, probably slightly older than us. I mean, just got out of the truck hacking and spitting and smelling something fierce of the weed. <laughs> it just it <laughs> popped into my head, and I was like, "Man, we used to go to Blockbuster all the time. Like people used to make whole weekends of like, let's go get a movie. There was a time we bought our first DVD player in the house many many moons ago." Went and rented like five movies to test them out on. Weird issues with that DVD player. Returned it the next night. Bought another one. Dad's like, let's get some more movies. So we had like 10 movies at the house. We did it one more time. Had like 15 movies at the house. I just remember Die Hard. I've loved it since. It's just been the best Christmas movie to ever grace the earth. The the stoner thing is funny because Blockbuster (laughs) is actually a decent place to go stock up on junk food and candy, I guess. You know, compared to like trying to get through the line at Walmart and I'm sure you can't see right and you look weird and you're paranoid and everything. Probably not a great experience to go into Walmart, but Blockbuster, nice low light, video games and movies. (laughs) Uh, They probably had a hard time getting stoners to leave Blockbuster. The the things they tried before they disappeared, you could rent consoles. Do you remember that? Do you remember they would have like in the N64 era, you could rent the entire console in this giant what I imagine like the nuclear code briefcase would look like this big oh, yeah. thick thing that you could probably just handcuff to your wrists. Yeah. Uh, you could pick that thing up and take it up to the cashier and rent 
an N64, but not even for as long as a game. I think it was only like three or four days or so. It, it seemed like it there were weird on stipulations. What they had in stock, I think. At least, oh. so we had a local one. You know where Dorian's is down the street from my parents, literally like five houses yeah. down the street from my parents. And right across the street from there, it used to be a place called Dream Video. <laughs> and you could go rent, I mean, I don't know how many Sega games I rented from there. Um, and yeah, right around that time, the 64 started popping. You could go down there and we could rent a 64, two controllers and like two games for like, I wanted to say like four days. It was maybe 15 bucks. Like that's nothing. That's all. Yeah. Me and Jay would mow grass. My brother would mow grass or do, you know, (laughs) shovel driveways, snow or whatever, you know, just whatever money we had. We'd go get it for a couple of days and just play like Mario Kart, Super Smash, Wave Race. Uh, GoldenEye, all of the classics, and we would just rampage. We'd play all of it for 15 bucks, four days. It was endless entertainment. It was fantastic. (laughs) Mowing grass to play video games reminds me of a short story, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I I was buddies with these guys in high school. Uh, They were two drummers, so all three of us were drummers from from the high school. We all played in bands. We were all at the same uh, events and parties and stuff, and they called me one time because they were like, this lady on our buddy Kevin's street needs a bunch of trees cleared out of her backyard. And I mean, like, she's got woods behind her backyard and wants them gone, basically. She's made some deal with him that for, like, every tree or so many small trees that get cut down, she's willing to pay, like, so many dollars. And I mean, like, we all got chainsaws and just went into that backyard and just went nuts. <laughs> just, just all over. The, and, I mean, dangerous stuff. It's it's really not funny. Looking back on it now as a parent, it's like, what the hell's wrong with this woman? There's getting these kids. chainsaws out here. <laughs> I think she supplied a chainsaw or two, and one of us uh. brought a different one. We're just running around with chainsaws going nuts. <laughs> 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks. (laughs) It was kind of like that. She shelled out quite a bit of money to Mm. our, you know, six, uh, probably 16 year old butts for cutting trees down all day. And we each earned like 80 or 90 bucks. That's legit. Right. The plan was they were like, oh, we're going to use this to go get booze for this party at so and so's (laughs) house. And like, I, for me, it felt a little early to be getting boozy at somebody else's house. And I wasn't into that stuff at that time. So we each earned like 80 or 90 bucks cutting down this stranger's trees. They wanted me to throw in with them on booze for this party that secretly I didn't plan to go to. Like those guys were into that stuff. I was way more interested in like my computer and video games and stuff like that. Uh, I was dating at the time. I was not super interested in going and getting wasted with a bunch of strangers. I'm good. So, and by the time I get past like the four, cause we're, we're counting in our heads. We're like, okay, this amount of work, this amount of time, we've done like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. As mm-hmm. we pass like the $50 mark, I did not come across money like that at that time. Same. I was old enough to work. And I mean, 80, 90 bucks is at that time. It was close to like a week's work, like an aggressive week of part-time, you know, Wendy's or whatever. Right. Uh, you're not looking at more than a hundred bucks. So. In my head, I'm like, there's no way these dudes are taking this money <laughs> to go get what? I mean, what are they even buying for like 300 bucks close to? <laughs> and I was like, change of plans. I'm just going to go do something else. And like, they were not thrilled, but I think, I think I ended up buying, what did I do? Uh, that wasn't when I bought my GameCube, but it all went straight mm. to GameStop. I can tell you that. 
that w- now buying video games, 60 bucks a pop, that doesn't go very far yeah. either. But I mean, right. I had the time of my life as a result of that crazy, dangerous tree cutting that we should have not been involved in at all. Uh, but oh my goodness, what a magical time. Take a gander at what the original 64 cost back in the day. Oh, original 64 back in the day. It was expensive. It was a competitor uh, to PlayStation. Probably, wait, no, no, no. Competitive with Sony and Sega. So that was probably Sega Saturn and what, PlayStation 1 ish? How about $299? It says $199, surprisingly. But back in like, okay. that was what year nope. was that? I can tell you what it was. Yeah. $199 for the console, literally like 70 or 80 bucks for the RF switch. To, yes. to use it with like yes. most TVs. And that that thing sold out. Nobody could get it. Yeah. My my best friend at that time got the N64 for Christmas and we couldn't play it for like five or six months. It was unreal. Do you know how much that hurts to watch that thing sit uh-uh. there? <laughs> and you, you got a stack of games. And he's got all the controllers and everything. And it's just sitting there because it's not compatible with any TV either of us had. It's awful. Awful feeling. Thankfully, my dad was like a Radio Shack junkie, so we always had adapters for like everything. God bless him. I know <laughs> it was it was a great thing when Radio Shack was still a thing. They said it was supposed to be priced at two hundred and fifty, but they wanted to be a little more aggressive and compete with Sony and Saturn or Sony and uh, Sega. That makes sense, but we they totally didn't want to be Sega competitive now. with the with the accessories that everyone needed. Rumble packs, memory cards, expansion packs for Perfect Dark. Otherwise, you couldn't play. Right. Donkey Kong Kongas mm. N64, right? Or was it GameCube? <laughs> Didn't they have like the worst cover? I'm remembering. I don't know if it was the original DK Bongos, but then they have some awful commercial where everybody was like just cutscene to cutscene and everybody's like, hur, 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 Bongo or something. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> so right. awful. That checks out. I love that. Yeah. That... <laughs> and you <laughs> could go into any GameStop until like only four or five years ago. And just floor-to-ceiling stacks of the Donkey Kong Congas. Much like uh, DJ Hero. A lot of you yes. all know what I'm uh, talking about. <laughs> it's just piled Did everywhere. Did they even make two of those? I don't remember. I never played I it. the first. But I sure saw it everywhere. If I was going to play like a rapping DJ game, it would be oh, uh, Parappa the Rapper or whatever his name was. Parappa the Rapper is correct. Followed up by Umjammer Lammy. I don't know that one. She was a little rocking rock star lamb. <laughs> Parappa was the jam, though. Oh, I still yeah. have Parappa songs stuck in my head. I mean, what a soundtrack. <laughs> That's a funny banger game. after banger. All right. Support for Game Dev Breakdown is brought to you by Manscaped, who offers absolute best-in-class male grooming products, or as they like to say, precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched the Performance Package 4.0 featuring the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is awesome, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair trimmer, and more. And this is our final week of the trial campaign with Manscaped, so it's important to me, if you're thinking about jumping on something for uh, from Manscaped, Go ahead and do it in the next couple of days here and tell them, hey, thanks for supporting game dev content. This is awesome. Thank you. I will be going back for more. Needless to say. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Okay, good, good, good. (laughs) You or someone you care about can join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code GAMEDEV at manscaped.com. G-A-M. 
E-D-E-V, Game Dev. That's right. 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code GAMEDEV. Unlock your confidence with the new Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Reach out and tell them thank you. Thank you, thank you for supporting Game Dev content. Enjoy. Should we talk about this uh, career... We had something sent in is what happened. Okay. Uh, somebody at one of the PR firms I interact with sent in a report about training in the workplace. And there's a little bit of an interesting spin to it. And they were curious about like how we might apply it to the games industry. And so the idea, the, the report is called the upskill ultimatum by immerse is the company and uh, zebra partners sent this in. And the idea of this is, employees are uh, hiring and firing is a lot different now because of COVID and returning from COVID. So a lot of the trends that we, we were watching in 2019 or 2018 going into 2019 don't necessarily hold up anymore because everything has changed greatly. There's a lot of back and forth on both sides about like a lot of employers are saying we can't hire fast enough. We have so many jobs. We don't have enough people working. And then, job seekers who are coming back from COVID time going, that's nonsense. I'm applying like crazy all day and all night. And they're just saying, no, I believe both sides of that for sure. I know employers are short on staff and I know for sure that some of the BS in the interview process has not changed. It's maybe gotten worse because everybody suspects that everybody who's not employed right now doesn't want to be or mm -hmm. there's some issue with them when most of these people either left a job, a, a company closed down during the pandemic. Like a, there are a lot of factors and employers are not keeping up with it. So with that in mind, this company, I believe, was already working on this research because it was a big survey, a big study with a lot of, of research surrounding it. But it's about training on the job. We both have non-games tech jobs. Historically, I've moved into content creation, stuff like that, but I've freelanced with some VR studios. This is all about high-tech VR, AR, 360 video. And so the executive summary of this report, and I'll, I'll link to all this in the show notes, but the idea behind this report is employees expect to receive frequent, they say reskilling or upskilling, and you can that all falls under the umbrella of training on the job training for relevant things you can use other than like, here's our software that we use to log sales or whatever that John made over the last five years in back. So legitimate transferable skills for the career. This company says that there's going to be another big retention problem if companies don't do better about training people once they're in giving them new skills, refreshing the old skills, training them on how to do their job better and make themselves more valuable as employees. Everybody wins in that situation. I've been a lot of places. I've had a lot of jobs for a lot of employers. I'm here to tell you that kind of training for me, I've almost never seen it. The closest I've been is government work where most of the training is directly attached to laws, like legislative issues where like, you contractors have to have so many hours of harassment training, right. so many hours of like workplace safety, like OSHA training, stuff like that. Yeah. Actual time to like, why don't you guys learn the new JavaScript framework? 
almost never has happened. Uh, I The last place before I went indie gave me a little time to do like, you know, do your own like independent research, work on your own projects, make sure you spend so many hours per week. Like that was groundbreaking for these guys. I don't know if that's regional or what, but tell me what your experience like that is. Um, I can speak <clears throat> from where I came from last 10 years to now. And I was just talking with my wife earlier. I've been there a little over six months now, it looks like. And the six months I've been here, I've probably learned tenfold what I did in about almost 11 years at the last place. Yeah. That's the difference between public and private, though. I worked for a school district. Now I work for a financial firm. So mm -hmm. we were constantly putting out fires. We had three people. There was no time to do. It was, it was for lack of better terms, pissing on an inferno. <laughs> As opposed to here, I have a whole team that I work with. And we're putting out fires all day long, but I also can draw from Todd's experience or John's experience or, you know, John and Susie and Billy and everybody else. And we tackle things as a whole and we have time and we have resources and nice tools and other things and engineers to bounce things off of or another team if we need to, you know, networking, whoever. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I do agree with what you're saying, though, like the most formal training I've ever gotten has just been compliance stuff in relation to laws, harassment, things like that, like yeah. defrauding things, things of those nature. Um, it's not been, Hey, here's this new software. Let's go check this out. This is how we're going to do things. Or, you know, it's not been so proactive. There's been twice they've dropped like a new tool out there, but like no training. It's like, here you go. This is very generally how you use it. Good luck. You know, that's, yeah. that's been about it. So I would agree pretty well, hundred percent. And where the high tech stuff is concerned, because they're proposing that more employers start to use stuff like virtual reality for training, augmented reality training, 360 video stuff. We are starting to see stuff I've contracted to make before, which is super fun, super fulfilling work. If you're not going to work directly in games and you want to work with this tech, that's an emerging field that is awesome. Very cool stuff there. But you would be on a team that would support this kind of stuff. So I'm interested in hearing, I suspect I know what the opinion is going to be, but uh, the cool thing about this report, and I like going over reports like this because they say like what percentage of people agreed with or disagreed with the following. I want to hear whether you and I think it's high, low, makes sense, what other questions we have. So let's look at some of this. Yeah, here's a bullet point that says, most employees say immersive tech, which is all encompassing VR, AR, 360, and all this. Immersive tech would make training exciting for the first time. I think that's an easy one. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah, right? you put on a headset and you're doing something like that and you're, for like, I don't know, for lack of better terms, you're, think of all the simulator games, you know, people eat that up and it's just like right. grass mowing simulator, truck driving simulator, farming simulator. It's just something that you've never got to do that they're bringing to you simply. And I am famous for loving Farming Simulator. Yeah. <laughs> Play those games all the time. Um, not all the time, but I, I check them out because they're fun. Okay, here's one that I, I kind of question a little bit. 70% of HR employees and 62% of non-HR employees say immersive tech would provide safe training for high-risk scenarios. My question is, who does not think that training in VR for a high-risk scenario, let's say you are working for the electric company and you are training for downed power lines. Yeah. This is something that I've, uh, I haven't worked on, but I've, uh, helped provide quotes for a client before for this exact scenario. 
let's say you need training on how to safely uh, rope off the area, handle the, the wire, move the vehicles back and forth, stay at a safe distance. Who would not agree that training in VR instead of some other way is, is a, a safe way to do that, right? Yeah. What's, what's the that's counterpoint? That's a no-brainer. Yeah, that's just a no-brainer. <laughs> the person who said, no, I don't agree that that's a safe way to do that, like, are you worried I, the VR headset's going to catch fire? Or what, what are you thinking is going to take only, place here? The only argument I could come up with is if that was the only training you got in said high-risk thing, because you probably need the also practical hands-on portion after you've done a fair amount of the simulator virtual training. Right. You would almost have to like assume that the two kinds of training would not be equal in some way. I guess it's maybe yeah. what you're getting I at. I mean, pilots do training with sims all day long yeah. professional drivers do simulation stuff all day long. i mean sure. there's jobs just for training in sims for like say professional formula one people something like that like it's it's used for everything 48 percent of employees say they would change companies if they weren't receiving new training 25 percent said they haven't learned anything new in the last year I'm surprised that only 25, I'd be interested to know like what region they were in, how much diversity of uh, geography and background right. there was in, in the study, because 25% saying they haven't learned anything new in the last year actually sounds very low to me. I just, yeah. After a year at most jobs I've been at, it was already true. Right now it's just overwhelming to me, but yeah, we'll see in a year. The last place I could have said that easy, no problem. Right. You're in a competitive workplace with a what seems to be a pretty positive culture of learning and competition and like all the good things that you yeah. need. They're doing this stuff right from what it sounds like. I'd be hesitant yeah. to <laughs> to run through this with you if I was worried you were going to have to say a lot of stuff like, no, my current employer sucks at this. <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. So, yeah, 48 percent, almost half said they would change companies if they weren't receiving new training. I feel like <laughs> I feel like if I was going to maintain that perspective, I would be changing jobs a lot. If you really uh, practice what you preach there, yeah, people would be bouncing left and right. Yeah. Uh, here's one. Most HR and employees believe on-demand immersive training could solve a productivity crisis in the workplace. Okay, fine. That's a little bit of a hypothesis more than anything, but it's yeah. interesting to think of on-demand immersive training. So, I mean, I don't know what that would look like in effect. A shelf with headsets on it, you could run and go like, I have a free hour or a free half hour. Let me grab one of these things and go through a module of training or something. Right. Like, yeah, that seems... Solve a productivity crisis in the workplace. I would have to hear kind of how those two dots were connected, but maybe, right? It's all pending on the job. I, would, I could see some places using that all day long and some places where like, Plugging in Excel numbers all day long might not be as applicable to you, but everybody has a job for a reason. So. Yeah, because there was some pushback on some of these points, they went into some of the barriers and concerns from, I guess, you know, respondents for the survey. Mm -hmm. And they're, uh, <laughs> the big ones are, number one, 52% of people said they were concerned about data protection issues from this kind of training. I That doesn't hold up for me. Um, I, I don't see why you would be using a special account that you wouldn't be using otherwise for your company. Um, you wouldn't be logging into your personal, like Facebook account or something like that. 
I would think it would be all the same security and all the same safety you would have if you were training on your computer. No more or less protected. I guess I could hear more about that one somehow, but... I would love... For more than half of the people replying to say this, I I have questions. I, I can't come up with anything good for that one. No, that doesn't make sense to me. That seems like they just don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Someone would have to explain it to me. Um, people are worried about it being too complex. 42% of people agreed with that. That's fair. Right? Old dog, new tricks. I get it. You, you're not a frequent VR user. I'm sure you yeah. would be like, I'll, going into it, you might be a little apprehensive. Like, yeah. I hope I don't look foolish when I try to do right. this. Worried about performance being compared to colleagues, also 42%. How would this be different than any other training on this one? This is grades in school, for crying out loud. I mean, I'm, as- I'm asking you as if you did the study, but <laughs> I I don't understand why this would be any different or why you would com- why you would perform or compete any differently than with any other kind of workplace training, which... There is an element of, of competition. I mean, people doing training, if it grades you, if, if you come away with a number or something, like there right. is a little bit of like, I got a perfect score on the accounting <laughs> training. You hear that stuff. That's legit. Yeah. I've seen that. But it's Absolutely. not any different if you do it in a headset or do an AR exercise with your phone or something. What difference I, does that make? They must think people, you're going to have an audience each time you have this headset on and people are going to be laughing and pointing and critiquing and instead of like you're probably in a room by yourself and it records your score and you walk away. I don't know. I think you're on to something. I think if you pushed people who had these concerns that seem like they don't really check out for me, I feel like if you pushed on something, someone would admit like, I feel like people are going to watch me and they're, and I'm going to look foolish because, and if you think about it, a lot of people's only exposure to VR are viral videos of somebody falling on their face, trying a roller coaster in VR in the mall. That is legit to me. Like that's for people who don't use this stuff at all. I think there's a big disconnect between enthusiasts of technology, not being able to understand apprehension from people who have never done this and never intended to, and now my boss says I have to. I could see that. I could see that anxiety. That's just can't handle the spotlight is what they're more concerned about. Instead of like thinking you could have this private training office that you're running through a module on and nobody gives a shit what you're doing. <laughs> so yeah. just do you and learn. Here's another one. 33% of people agreed with this. They said, I'm worried it will give me motion sickness. That I understand it. Completely. It doesn't check out because it shouldn't check out because... No designer of VR training for the workplace in their right mind right. would would incorporate motion inside the simulation. You would have to be Satan's own hell spawn <laughs> to do something like that to these people who have never used this. What are you going to like? Here we are in the fire truck. Woo-hoo, it's going 60 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> Don't do that. So as long as that's true, there's no reason to worry about Because if you're doing a stationary activity in VR... And that's all it is. There's almost no way right. that you're going to get motion sick if the tracking is functioning. If the tracking gets off and it's it decides your head is like two feet over to the left instead of that. OK, that could mess you up or too low. Too low is a bad one. OK, I'm 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 starting to come around on this argument <laughs> <laughs> as a VR developer. I'm starting to see the cracks in my own argument here. But uh, the last one checks out for me. 
31% said, I'm worried I'm too old to adapt to, to new technology. This is a little more of an ask than like, learn to use this cheap Dell computer that we put right. on your desk, learn to use this fancy phone and how to transfer calls. Like this is pretty advanced stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's where we get into like, I want to hear your thoughts because I would think somebody in your position would be kind of worried about implementing and supporting this on an ongoing basis. Here's how to use the controllers. Here's how, here's how to stand. Here's how much space you need around you. Right. Uh, Jan fell down in accounting. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, doesn't this seem like maybe a little bit, a little bit of a nightmare for you? It would be. Um, I think of our, so at our firm, we obviously have like board of directors and it's on, it's floor 12. It's all of our execs, CEOs, people like that of all departments and then of the company as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I think of going up there and trying to like this guy made a stand in line type of thing when the iPhone 13 came out just to like have it first that day, one for him and his son. Oh, and no. then we brought it back, had to set it up directly in front of him. He likes to open his own boxes apparently, but he will hand you the trash. You, you can't get away oh, from that no. portion of stuff like that. So I think of like dealing with them on something like this and they're just, no, I'm above it. I don't have to do it. And then I also think, like I said, old dog new tricks where like you got the, the guy that's put in, maybe this is second career. He's, you know, mid sixties getting ready to retire. And then they whip this out in front of you. And he's just like, no, don't get it. I'm afraid of it. Don't care. I, yeah. I can do it with my hands. I put on this thing and then I'm doing what I don't understand. Like, what is this? I can just go do it. You know, people like that. And then you have the other people that are just, you know, always willing to try anything new and try and try whether they're good or bad. So I see both sides to it, but yeah, more so than not supporting something like this, because as support, you know, you wear that smile, you you got to be encouraging, you can't speak down to people, but when they're having a shit time, and they're throwing a shit fit, and they're just being ridiculous to work with, and stubborn, and you can't make me, like, sh- the last, all right, <laughs> well, that's another story, forget it, anyway, okay. yeah, people like that, it's, it's just no good, so I see both sides, but yeah, the support side just seems like a nightmare, because no matter what, you have to, you did a great job, you know, positive reinforcement, and <laughs> You're getting there. You're making progress. You know, this is the other reason that I can't go back to the traditional workplace. These stories you're telling, (laughs) I can't. I'm too far gone. Like I've been out of the game too long. People want to know. Like I talk to to people every once in a while who are like, I like doing my podcast. I like doing blogging stuff. I could never match your output. And that's a that sounds like a nice thing to say, but actually is like. You have a balance problem in your life. And here's why that is. I can't go back to the traditional workplace because the first time an executive tried to hand me their trash back after I went and stood in line for not only them for their phone, but also one for their kid who couldn't right. be bothered to go stand oh, in line. Oh, and he needed a backup as well. So that's two phones for him, one phone for his kid. So just in case the first one ate shit, he had a backup on site ready to go. And when he took that shrink wrap off and tried to hand it to me, I'd say, fuck you, there's a trash can right over there. Like, Are you shitting me? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard that story today. Like, I wasn't yeah. up there. I just heard that. I was working with the mobile people today, and they told me he's, we were setting up a new phone for another VIP is what we call him, and she was great. And Melissa handed this lady the phone and was like, here, would you like to open it? And the lady looked at her like, what the hell's wrong with you? Just open the phone. And Terry was like, well... I'm not going to use the guy's name. CEO likes to open his own package, but he'll hand you the trash. I was like, oh, geez, Jesus that would suck. Christ. And you have to do it with a smile, you know, like probably put it in your pocket or something because you can't walk past him to put it in his trash can. 
I don't don't want to plant this seed of shit in your brain that's going to grow into like resentment. So let me just celebrate you (laughs) for for the job you're doing at your job. I can't. Congratulations. Yes, it's all you deserve every good thing you're getting at that job. (laughs) Holy shit. Thankfully, I don't go to 12. Uh, I don't. Number one, I don't dress for it. You got to be all tied up and suited up for that. Oh, well, uh, yeah, because otherwise you can't unwrap the phone. Exactly right. Without a so, tie on. There's God like a select four making me mad just sitting here. <laughs> there's a select four or five people. Fair enough, sweat. but geez. Yeah, but I don't Try I don't to remain like human. To. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. You've, you've more than confirmed what I suspected <laughs> about the idea of onboarding people with this process, supporting this process, even if this is inevitably where we're headed for some fields. I feel like certain jobs are going to move this direction and they should, and we'll do whatever we have to as developers, as tech guys, we'll make it work. I think it's good that we, that we have this option. Some places are going to try to shoehorn it in like into finance (laughs) when we do not need it in finance. Um, (laughs) at least, at least my, my mind, I'm not seeing it yet. Maybe there are legitimate reasons that it's coming and that's fine. Um, Game development, as it applies there, this is interesting because the people in game development right now are the people making this. Because I do think those fields are going to diverge and we're going to have much, many more dedicated VR people for non-games and many more people who are doing VR games. And that's great. And I, they'll jump back and forth, but I think they will be very distinct fields at some point. They're not right now. They, they contract people in, in the, they contract whole game studios, publishers, stuff like that, and they do whatever they need to get that thing created. Can it be used the same way in the games industry? Probably for some stuff. They're they're even starting to do virtual reality training for like certain kinds of HR work. There was a very famous thing that went around about this VR person that you could fire. Like you had to go through the process of like firing this person. (laughs) And he was like... He was very realistically rendered and he was very lifelike and he would like react in unpredictable ways. Sometimes he'd be okay. Sometimes he'd like beg for his job. Sometimes he'd like break down and cry in front of you. It seems brutal to make HR people go through this, but that is the job. I'm sure it happens. Yeah. It was widely criticized because <laughs> people don't like the idea of this kind of thing. Like, oh God, <laughs> this is how we're using this technology. In some ways, yes. Uh, especially as we get better with like, AI learning and machine learning and stuff. This is going to be how it is. We're going to have to learn to deal with fake people for training purposes. Okay, fine. Sometimes in real life. (laughs) We have a lot of HR issues in game development is, is where I'm going with that. Like there are a lot of interpersonal issues right now in the industry. I don't know of a lot of ways you're going to be able to bring in like a C++ pro, let's say C sharp is a little more up to date, a C sharp programmer, a unity developer and go put on your headset. I'll teach (laughs) you how to do this thing in unreal engine. That person would look at you strange, rightly so HR stuff, maybe, maybe community management or, you know, social media stuff. There are things I can think of. The problem is right now, It's kind of like putting a nice, fancy new refrigerator into a house that's burning down. Yeah. The game industry has giant, giant problems that make it kind of hard to think about how to apply this right now. Like, how could we take this to Blizzard? Well, I'm not sure it would matter. (laughs) Because Blizzard's cleaning house, 
Blizzard should clean up Morehouse, from what I've heard. From what I heard, yeah. <laughs> right. Word on the street out in Irvine <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> there are problems in the game industry we're not going to be able to solve soon enough to really be on at the forefront of this. So it is a good idea. Uh, game developers will continue to be on the other side of this, creating stuff. And we may move in this direction, again, especially for those people skill roles. I think that that will end up here right now. Who we got other fish to fry and it's a mess and I won't get too far into it because <laughs> we end up talking about it all the time. Anyway, in, in yeah. today's interview, crunch is yeah. going to come up right away. And so I liked reading about this report and reading what people had to say. And it's always interesting to kind of compare your experience to the experience of like a larger set of people to try to get that perspective. Because in some of these, like I didn't feel like I was on the same wavelength at all. So that's what this stuff is for. So um, Immerse did a great job with this. And uh, thanks to Zebra Partners for sending it over. With that, I guess we should set up uh, this week's interview. Let's do it. Let's do it. This week, I got to talk to uh, Chad and Curtis McKinney of BitRot, which is an indie studio. Chad is the senior, let me get the title right, the uh, senior lead gameplay engineer at Cloud Imperium working on Star Citizen which has, uh, as everyone knows, that's been a long, decade-long process already for a game that's still not out. Um, a lot of people look at that and go like, that game never even came out. Well, the truth is, it is in active development. There are playable modules from the game. And there's never been a more ambitious game in history, I don't think. I can't imagine. Because like every time I look, they're trying to add something new, but then they're kind of delivering on a lot of it. They're, they're like, you can walk through the ships now. You can visit these planets now. You can uh, start to deal with the trade system and the currency and stuff. They're delivering on things. And um, listen for this when Chad sort of describes who Star Citizen is for right now. He says that it's basically for people who are interested in following development. That perspective made it click for me in a different way for the first time. I won't give away too much more. It's a really interesting chat. These guys are twin brothers with PhDs who collaborate on music projects. I could go on and on. Sit Ellie. back and enjoy my chat with uh, Chad and Curtis of BitRot. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, uh, Chad and Curtis, thank you so much for jumping on a call. Uh, who would like to introduce themselves first? Give give us the rundown of uh, who we are, what you do. So I'm... I'm Curtis McKinney. Uh, that's Chad McKinney. We're actually twin brothers, uh, and we formed a, a game studio called BitRot. Um, so, yeah, we actually have been collaborating for a very long time, obviously. We've been working on music at first, uh, doing different music projects, and then over time we got into games, and now we have a game studio together. But Chad, actually, he maintains a position at uh, Cloud Imperium. I don't know if you want to talk about that, Chad. Sure. I'm Chad, and yeah, uh, I am a full-time uh, senior lead gameplay engineer at Cloud Imperium Games working on Star Citizen, um, but because I don't like sleep or something, I <laughs> on, on the evenings and on the weekends uh, work on Recursive Ruin with Curtis as, as BitRot, so I'm, I'm doing lots of games development. <laughs> It's encouraging that you're able to do that position and you have time on nights and weekends. That's probably a good sign for the studio, right? Yeah, it's 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 gotten a lot better. There was um, 
for anyone who's familiar with the development of the game. I, I've been there for coming on six years now, so for quite some time. And earlier on in, in the history of the company, there were certainly some releases that we had, notably the 3.0 release that had quite a bit of pushing that was required. But over time, our processes have matured a lot and the company's grown a lot. So um, crunch has reduced dramatically. And it's something that I am very vocal about. Like if you follow me on Twitter or anything like that, you'll <clears throat> you'll see me talking about uh, the conditions in the industry. And, and crunch is absolutely one of the things that I, I, tr I try very hard to make sure that we're not having to use very often. Where are we at with like publicly available things for people to check out? What can people be looking at as Star Citizen right now? Yeah, so we're we're in open alpha, which is what we call it, where um, the game is not technically released in any kind of final state. It's open development. So right now you can um, either during events you can you can actually play the game for free. We'll have free fly events, which is what we call them. I don't remember when the next one we have coming up is, but uh, very often we'll do that. Or you can you can um, invest in the game and, and get like a starter package. And we have all these different kinds of ships that you can buy, but like the cheapest one is, uh, is, is like forty dollars, I think. Mm -hmm. And you can you can play the game now. It's again in open development, so that does mean that there are going to be bugs and there are going to be crashes and performances and as good as it could be. But you can see exactly where we are with the game right now which means you'll see that we have one complete system now, which has like three or four planets. We have lots of moons. You, the gameplay area in the game is rather immense. We have a ton of ships, lots of missions. Uh, so it's, it's definitely, I think, something that if you're interested in games development and want to see something kind of progress, it's a very interesting project to follow. Or if you're interested in big space games, it's, it's a fun, exciting game to follow because it's, I think doing something that's more ambitious than really any other project I've, I've been a part of, at least myself, um, and, and can think of. So I, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about if, you know, one of those two things are, are something that you're interested in. I love that squat rack behind you. That looks awesome. Yeah, yeah. I gotta keep in shape, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, we, we just recently bought like one of the multi-purpose machines for our, for our basement. I love that. But before that, I was definitely looking at, at racks just like that. Uh, Curtis, you also have some interesting things in the background. Walk me through some of the instruments there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like I said, we do music. Uh, we've been doing music stuff for a long time. Back here, we've just got like a MIDI controller and we've mm. got an audio interface. And, uh, we actually do most of our music. Um, we, we do kind of a mix. So we'll do a mix of, uh, recorded instruments like acoustic guitar or, uh, contrabass, things of that nature. Uh, but we also do a lot of kind of, uh, electronic stuff. Yeah. But the stuff that we do is all using a programming language and an audio engine that we made ourselves. So hmm. that's what we studied in school. Uh, we say kind of computer music stuff and we developed this programming language called Necronomicon. It's influenced by Lucid, Super Collider, Haskell. And uh, we use stuff like this to kind of control the software instruments that we make in that language. And then we make music like that. So. I've, I've seen some uh, audio tweets from you, and they it, it seems pretty deep right away. Like, technically speaking, it sounds like you guys do some pretty fascinating stuff. How long have you been doing the music stuff together? We started playing... Um music when we were in fifth grade. I think we took a band and I played trumpet. Uh, I think Curtis, you started on trumpet too at the time. Um, but 
uh, soon thereafter, we got into like, you know, metal and stuff like this. So I played my, my first instrument. I really invested a lot of time into was guitar and, and Curtis's mm-hmm. uh, played bass. And we were in lots of bands together, metal bands, experimental jazz, this kind of stuff. Um, but then over time, since that, we've gotten more into electronic music. And well, because- I should say we also went through a period. We studied uh, music composition, so we we did the classical nice. music thing pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was just skipping by that, but <laughs> well, yeah. uh, uh, so- <laughs> but, but you know, the point is is that we kind of went from I would say like traditional instruments and kind of over time have evolved into more and more technical things uh, over yeah. you know a long period of time. I get it because when you live a musical life like that, which is for for people who are fortunate enough to start early, it's a lifelong thing. You go through a lot of phases like that. I totally went through that because I started playing like, you know, bass drum and snare drum stuff in, you know, like grade school and grew up and went through marching band, jazz band, classical performance. You, you, uh, again, those fortunate enough spend some time learning the composition stuff and then yeah, bands that played around town and things like that. I'm really jealous that you each had a sibling to play with because I would have loved to force someone in my household to pick up a different instrument and we could play. And I've I've known people like in bands and stuff. Oh, yeah, my brother's into it. We play all the time and stuff. That's the best. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's funny how it started. I mean, like Chad said, he plays guitar. I play bass. And the whole reason for that was just because... uh he knew how to, re- at the time, we were very young, and he knew how to read treble clef, and I knew mm. how to read bass clef. So I was like, okay, I guess you play guitar, I play bass. Uh, but yeah, all of our um, music endeavors have been collaborations, and um, it's it's really good, I think, to have a collaborator who you can be completely honest with. Like, I've worked <laughs> with other people, and uh, I think it's good to work with non-family members, obviously. <laughs> but the, the thing about us is that... Um, we can be completely honest. Sometimes it's like, you know, it can be brutal, <laughs> but I think that the process produces uh, better, you know, music, uh, better, you know, games. Um, and I think it makes us better artists because we're always pushing each other to, to do better. So mm. I'm very thankful for it. So thank yeah, you, Chad. And the thing I would say is that um, it, it has its, its ups and its downs, like its pros and cons, you know. No downs. When, no. when someone is family, <laughs> You, you can be, as Curtis said, uh, very honest. But I think the important part of it is that it's coming from a, pay, a place of earnest positivity, right? Mm. So like you want, you know that the person who's saying whatever it is, whatever criticism or compliment, you know, is coming from a place of wanting to see the best for you. Um, but of course, you know, you have such a long history together that there's all this subtext to everything <laughs> that happens. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas like if you're working with somebody else, I think maybe the, the advantage there is you, you have exposure to somebody that has a very different life experience than you. And that's, that's the times where I've really appreciated collaborating, collaborating with people other than Curtis or yeah. where we have both collaborated with someone other than each other, where, um, they just have some life experience or they have some aesthetic or, or, you know, s- some approach that is just way different than anything that I have done. And that's exciting because now, you know, it's a new challenge. It's a new kind of thing to bring into the mix. So, I mean, at what point do, do we decide, Hey, let's start a game studio between us. I mean, it's a funny story. It's a long one, but I'll try to make it short. I'm sure. (laughs) I mean, we, we've always kind of had two loves in life, right? It's always been 
games and music really always um and the first one though was games so we first started i think in maybe age five or six um our our father got a, a commodore 64 nice. uh, but this was it was already old by this point so we're not like <laughs> super old uh but we got an old commodore 64 and that was like our first gaming you know system and we just obsessed over it. i i love those games i still think of those games today uh mm. you know like BattleTech 2 the crescent <laughs> hawks revenge which nobody knows that game but i love it um and the thing though was i think we always had a creative drive and even then we wanted to make stuff and we tried even to make stuff on the commodore uh that was probably our first instance of trying to program we i remember there was this book uh, that was all about the Commodore, some kind of manual for the Commodore 64. And it had a, in it uh, some page of code. And we spent all day trying to get it into the thing <laughs> and actually got it to work. And then all you got at the end was like this, you know, like bouncing yellow ball that was kind of lame. So, <laughs> uh, after that, we got really into music. Uh, we were just always kind of around music and immediately became enamored with a um, metal. Like Chad said, it was probably one of the first kind of obsessions we had. Um, I remember we were so obsessive about it. We would pl practice our instruments like 14 hours a day, not exaggerating, right? Uh, like constantly. Uh, and like we didn't get the chance uh, to have instructors, really. Uh, so we had to teach ourselves. So we watched a lot of video of other people playing and we, we, taught, we taught ourselves how to play. Uh, and then through the years, we, you know, we did the band thing. We went to school for music composition and all this stuff. But a strange thing happened. We, we always loved games, right? But we we followed the track of music into school. But as we learned music composition, this strange thing happened where we were being taught all of this stuff, all of this, you know, counterpoint, uh, you know, harmony, all this stuff, uh, arrangement, orchestration. Uh, and But the problem was we couldn't necessarily use it all because a lot of the techniques that they're teaching you are for specific ensembles, like yeah. symphony orchestras that are not easy to get a hold of, right? <laughs> so if you want to compose music for a, a symphony orchestra, you can, but then or actually even a the thing. string quartet, right? Right, or yeah. a string quartet yeah. or anything. You know, you, to actually get it uh, performed is another thing altogether. So we, you know, all, at that time, there we started to listen to a bit more experimental, interesting avant-garde electronic music. You know, Square Pitcher, Aphex Twin, um, Carl Stone, things of that. Yeah, yeah Mersbau. Uh, and we realized, you know, there's kind of this whole world of electronic stuff that didn't require uh, any of the classical music ensembles, but we could still use all of this knowledge that we learned, right? We could use, you know, these concepts of like counterpoint and orchestration and arrangement um, and, and kind of emphasis on timbre. Um, so because of that, we got, we started to get very deep on computers and we taught ourselves even though we were in school we were studying music so we had to teach ourselves <laughs> how to uh program and how to do computers so we started going deep on our initial forays were like max and sp i don't know if you know that it's like a music programming language that's visual <laughs> um and then we got into processing to do visuals and then we got into c plus plus and then at some point along the way we had been making increasingly sophisticated you know software instruments and uh, visualization systems. We, we learned 3D programming, you know, we learned 3D linear algebra and all this stuff just to make interesting music stuff. And then we kind of stopped and realized it was like, wait, we, 
we've kind of learned the techniques required to make games. <laughs> like, yeah. why? Maybe we should, you know, turn towards that. So that's what we did. Uh, we kind of did a turn into games development. So after school, we went into into the games industry. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's to add on to that. Um, a big part of this was uh, after our, we did our masters in, in electronic music at Mills College. Uh, it was kind of a, a open-ended question about like what we would be doing kind of with our life. And um, at the time, this is like right when there was the big uh, bank collapse and, you know, like all, all the economy just went to hell. <laughs> and we, you know, tried a bunch of different things, but really the thing that seemed like it was going to make the most sense was to just to keep going to school. Uh, and so we, we both ended up doing PhDs. Uh, in like a more technical aspect of, of music and, and technology. And that's why we started exploring a lot of these more technical things with, you know, making these kinds of digital instruments that are increasingly sophisticated. And one of the, one of the things that we were both very interested in was collaborative musical instruments. So what we were doing was exploring the space of making a collaborative interactive environment for doing live performances of like noise music basically but in this like 3d environment and so we just kept exploring this space uh, and at some point you know we published the research graduate and it's like okay what now uh and and normally there's a path that you go on once you've done the phd thing which is you you go into doing the professor thing right you, you just keep doing the academia thing um and i think for both of us we got to a point where i love doing that research and I love that space and there's some uh, amazing people there. But I think for us, what we were missing is that at some point it became more about like research and, and about like finding techniques and less about the thing itself that you're making. I think we wanted to get back to making things for the sake of making them. And that's why we were like, okay, well, what is something that we can do that leverages our skill sets in a way that we're interested in um, but actually also pays money <laughs> and games <laughs> development was like a really obvious thing. So at this point now we have the skill set uh, to, to potentially actually do this. And we're, we've been interested in games for a long time. And so, you know, we just went out on a limb and started applying for places and we both got into the industry actually uh, without having like either of us have computer science backgrounds where we just taught ourselves this stuff. Uh, and we got into it and then did it for years and years and years on, you know, other people's games. Um, but making small prototypes, small games, little things here and there the whole time. And at some point we decided that, okay, I think, I think it's been long enough. Let's just strike out on our own and, and make our own game and, and do something that's entirely our own. And, and that's how <laughs> I know we said we'd make this short, but that's how we finally ended up to where we're at with Rock, where we have our own studio and we're making our own game now. It, I mean, it's a fantastic story. I mean, you basically let an early love of music drive an entire education for both of you right up through doctorate level. I mean, that's you don't really hear that that much. But it, to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, the the technology part is there. The the interesting programming stuff you got into, uh, you know, the science, the math is, is clear with music. I mean, everybody agrees on that. Uh, you guys have taught yourselves how to get out there and research and learn and what a fantastic thing. I, I wish we heard more of that out in the world. You know, I, I wish more programs were kind of 
And and I say this as a homeschool dad, and maybe I'm going to lean heavier in this direction in the future because, I mean, we all love music in this house. And, um, yeah, people should take better advantage of the the learning and education potential of music, you know? Love that. I totally agree. And an interesting thing that I have found, honestly, is that I think there's a lot of crossover between music and programming in, in particular. Um, I I don't know. Com- I would be interested to see if there's research on the on the subject, but just... As far as like my kind of thinking about it, I feel like there is something to the kind of fractal mathematical subdivision nature of music that yeah. it has some inherent mathematical structure to it, you know, both to the pitch, you know, harmonic realm, but also the rhythmic realm. Um, and that the kind of person who, who really engages with that and latches onto it, I feel like the mindset you need to do that. Uh, lends itself very much to programming because it has a similar process. There are these structures that are abstract, like that. I mean, music is kind of abstract, right? It's this temporal thing that has a structure, but you can't see the structure, right? Yeah. So computer science and programming is the same thing. There are these abstract structures that you have to keep in your head that have these fractal natures to them, where there's a structure at the higher level, and then there's a structure below that, and at the little small level below it. At the smallest level, you're doing things and you have to keep all of it in your head at the same time. And so I, I think there's crossover there. So I think, um, you know, teaching children, uh, music can instill in them th- this manner of thinking. And if you want my personal opinion, um, I think that, uh, teaching kids the ways of thinking used in programming is much more useful than teaching kids the kind of superficial surface level aspects of programming. Like I see, um, programming books for kids where they're getting into like c plus plus syntax yeah and it's like i don't think a kid really cares what a carriage return is like it's not (laughs) useful or interesting whereas kids learning uh that that what i was talking about that mathematical structure and what manner of thinking abstract thinking that's really going to help them if they want to do that right yeah what i would add to that is the similarities don't just stop with there being this kind of structure but also that they're both these kinds of systems that evolve over time, uh, you know, with a with a piece of music, even if it's composed, there's some kind of you know, evolution over time. And as an, as a, as an instrumentalist, you're you're a small part in this kind of larger machine. Um, whereas it's like a game or anything that you're programming, the the CPU is is you know executing these series of instructions over time. And whenever you're writing your program, you have to understand it not just as this like frozen thing on the page but rather is this evaluation that's happening and to me that there's this really strong relationship with music um which i think is even further whenever you start considering things like um improvised music or or something that's that's more live uh and then on top of that i would also say that there's this relationship as far as the notation so for for us this idea that there's this evolving machine over time that's somehow encoded in this language on a page you know looking at code that made total sense this idea that you could read this thing it but it's a kind of this abstract encoding of this time-based evolution and so that i don't know to me like it, it was very very natural to make that that transition over whereas i imagine if you're more into something like art or like you know illustration or something because the thing that you work on so much is is just fixed, it's it's exactly that thing that you're looking at in entirety. Maybe that extra step of getting into programming 
you, you haven't been spending those years thinking in this this way. So maybe there's a it's, it's a more difficult transition. I don't know. No, it makes sense. I'm I'm with you both. Uh, there's a very natural architectural uh, element to it that you that you take on, and it leaves you with these philosophies that I think I think there is a lot of direct crossover and and a lot of very similar brain processes involved in both and i i love that and i've i feel like i've taken naturally to both and i'm I'm thinking my son's probably going to also and uh like i said i i I hope that's something they study more in the future and do more with um we should get into your big project right now which is recursive rain and uh who wants to give me the elevator pitch for that one uh recursive ruin uh, but, I'm so sorry. I I put that wrong in my notes. Recursive you're ruin. You're not the first one to make that mistake. <laughs> so recursive ruin. Um, I guess the elevator pitch is that it is a surreal first-person narrative puzzle game about a despondent artist in search of meaning. Uh, and I I think that to really get it, to get people to kind of understand it, uh, you need to understand that there's at least like these two major components to it. Uh, that come together that that make it as a whole and the first part is like there's this puzzle you know game mechanics puzzle aspect to it Uh, but there is also this kind of surreal narrative aspect to it and they're both equally important so it's not just a puzzle game where you know you're just interacting with it mechanically um, and it's not just a narrative game uh, where it's just storyline it's kind of both um the mechanics aspect of it, uh, use, it's, it's fractal, you know, I'm bringing that buzzword back. It's <laughs> fractal uh, in this specific way. It's actually a specific kind of fractal called a strange loop. So we a long time ago, we were super into this book called Goodall, Escher, and Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid uh, by Doug, Douglas Hofstetter. Um, and, it, and it was this strange idea called a strange loop. And a strange loop, just to throw that out there real quick, is a concept whereby you move one direction in some kind of hierarchical system, and yet without changing direction, you end up where you started. Um, so like examples of that would be like um, Russian nesting dolls. So a doll which contains itself inside of itself, or like video feedback, or if you're a music person, uh, key modulation and Western music also does the same thing. So you can keep modulating by fourths and you'll end up in the same key that you started right um so the game itself does this it's like the whole world in the game is like a big russian nesting nesting doll so the world contains itself inside of itself and we've constructed all these levels to have these kind of beautiful fractal fractal nature to it and all these puzzles play off of the fact that the world repeats inside of itself Mm-hmm. But like I said, there's also this other aspect to it. You know, there's this narrative story of an uh, an artist, uh, and I, I, w- I want to emphasize it's um it's a kind of surreal story. So if you like things like if if you're like man, Twin Peaks is great. I want more <laughs> of that. Maybe even a little bit stranger. You know, you're you're gonna love this story. You know, uh, but it itself also has this fractal quality to it, the strange loop quality, because it's about this artist. Who, when you first come upon him, uh, he's he's quite despondent. He's in a very bad place, um, but it's a bit of a mystery exactly how he got there, right? Um, in fact, the whole game itself plays out as a bit both of a puzzle as far as the game mechanics, but also there's a puzzle as far as like what led this person to this place. So as you play the game, you put the puzzle, the pieces together, and figure out what led him to this point. 
Um, but when you first start out, the the artist, uh, he's in his apartment. It's quite dark and dreary, uh, but he finds this mysterious game, and uh, it's addressed from his previous address, uh, but without a sender. And he doesn't. It's unmarked and don't, doesn't know what it is. So he he ends up playing the game. So you yourself, the player, are playing a game called Recursive Ruin about an artist who finds a game. He plays that game, and that game is called Recursive Ruin. <laughs> and in that game is that infinite nesting world. So there's a fractal storytelling that's occurring. And what ends up happening is the artist plays this game within the game as a sort of escape from all the problems in his life. Because in the world that we call the infinite realms, um, in that world, everything is kind of mathematical. Everything is kind of pure. Everything is logical. There are logical solutions to problems. Whereas in, in the real world, what we call like the mundane world, in his real life, he has real world problems. And those real world problems don't have direct logical solutions, right? They're more complicated than that. So the game is kind of the story of this person interacting with this and trying to figure out how to work past their problems. You guys are working with Iceberg Interactive, who describes the game as trippy visuals. <laughs> they, they say they say it's. Uh, I saw one place they called it very emotional, and uh, it looks like that's the vibe they're going for, which I really like. And it's it's not fair to like simplify it by comparing it to other games because it's clearly doing its own brand unique thing. But it's it's to me it also occurs a little to me a little bit like uh, like Portal within a really cool music video or something uh, with a story unfolding on top of that. And so for that reason, like it's it's kind of not to be missed. I, I think um, when is the game? How far along in development are are we? And what are we looking at as a release window? How are things looking that on that end? I, I totally agree about you know Portal. Portal's a huge influence. Um, you know Jonathan Blow's games, Braid and The Witness, are also a huge influence. Uh, so those games definitely were big influences. Um, but as far as the the game uh, progress, right, like I said before, we we're we we're actually getting ready to hit our beta milestone, hmm. uh, and then hopefully, the, in theory, <laughs> we'll release in 2022. The exact point in that is still. Um, you know, we'll see exactly where it lands, but 2022 is what we're shooting for. How did you get Iceberg's attention on this? I mean, it's, it's impressive that you, that you uh, picked up a well-established publisher, right? Yeah. So what, I mean, what happened was, um, I mean, the story of the game is kind of, honestly, it's been a wild ride. That's how I would describe it. A wild sure. ride. And I could not have predicted at all. It was going to turn out the way that it did. Like I didn't, this wasn't like the master plan. And then like, it just came to fruition. Fair, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. What happened was, so like, um, I, it was around 2016. I was working at a place and, uh, you know, I was happy making games, but I was not happy making the games that we were making. Right. Hmm. So I, I felt like I wanted to make something more artistic. Uh, and I was feeling restrained. Uh, thankfully, what I had done is uh, the smart thing that I did. I just saved up a lot of money. I just basically never bought anything, and I worked for years, <laughs> and I saved up a bunch of money. So at some point, I just kind of said, "You know what? Um, why don't I just quit and I'll just make my own game, spend my savings, and just release it and see what happens? And if the nothing happens, I just option. go. 
Yes. Spend all your money. <laughs> Probably what will happen is I make, you know, I spend my savings. Uh, I make this game with Chad while he's like doing it on the side. And then I like go try to get a job at Cloud Imperium. Um, <laughs> I hope that's still <laughs> or someplace else that will take me. Right. Yeah. Um, at some point, though, I ran out of money and then because I never intended to get a publisher. Um, I intended to, you know, we really intended to do it ourselves. Um, I think naively, to be honest. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, different people do it differently. Um, so I'm not saying people have to get a publisher, to be clear. But for like, I think what we were trying to do, uh, it, a publisher now is, was very helpful for us in particular. Just to be clear. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I kind of ran, we kind of ran on money. Um, and I decided, okay, let's maybe look into publishers. So what we did is we, the game, it was pr definitely pre-alpha, but we had at least, um, we had the entire, all the levels for the game blocked out. And we had the first two-ish levels kind of like pretty presentable. So we decided we're just going to make a demo for the game. And we're going to make a pitch for it. And we're just going to contact as many people as possible. Uh, in fact, we had done this previously. Our first foray into games, actually, was many years ago. Uh, we did a similar thing. We, in, As a summer, over the course, well, over the course of a summer break, uh, we decided that we wanted a summer job. So we emailed a bunch of people asking, a bunch of game studios, asking if we could compose music for their games. And we actually ended up uh, landing a job with uh, Flagship Studios, and we wrote music for Hellgate London. I don't know if oh, you know that game. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we just, then like we just 2004 or something. No, 2007. 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in college. In our we were in program. college. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so at that time, we just literally just contacted a bunch of emails and then just email blasted everybody. So it came to this, and I was like, okay, let's just do the same thing again, right? Just run it back. It worked once. Um, so we sent it. I don't even know exactly how many people we contacted. Uh, I would say it's probably like 100. And, uh, no, not for publishers. No. Not for publishers? I don't know. No, no, no. I Ooh, mean, what we, what we did is we made a tier list. We collected a list of 100 publishers. Um, That's but true. We, yeah. we made a tier list, and then we we made kind of our tiers, what we call tier zero, tier one, tier two, tier three, and we started all the way up at tier zero and just started working down. I honestly think that we probably only contacted like maybe ten. Um, we fairly quickly started getting interest. I think we had the advantage that um, a lot of people who are pitching publishers are not nearly as far along as we were in development. Because by the time that people were looking at our game, it had already been in development for like three years. So it's not like, oh, here's this idea, you know, give me funding and this can be a game. It's like, no, this is a game that's, you know, almost done in a lot of aspects. And on top of it, we spent a lot of time polishing the prototype. So, you know, it had... Uh, an entirely, you know, the art direction was entirely set. We had, uh, I think, two fully playable levels. We had several characters with voice acting. We had music and sound effects for all of it. We had done modeling. So it was, I would say, like, certainly at a uh, a level that I'm sure for them, for the people that are going through lots and lots of, um, you know, proposals, it was at least stood out, I think, as far as like the amount of effort that had gone to it. You know, they would put aside whether it's good or not, or we should publish this game. But I think at least it got people's attention because it was notable that a lot of time had gone into it. 
and we had talked with with several publishers and iceberg ended up being the one that we went with but uh yeah it was it was this thing where uh it was just a lot of time <laughs> i don't know curtis you're gonna add on to that I mean, yeah, we put a lot of effort both into the game, but also the pitch, you know, like we, yeah. um, we basically did the same thing we always did, which was that uh, we decide we want to do something, we research it a lot, and then we try to do it the best we possibly can. We put as much effort into it that we can. We didn't half-ass any aspect of it. So we made a pitch, we made a pitch deck, we made a demo, we had, you know, a website, um, all that stuff up front. We had an email that was specific, you know, we were cross-referencing other people's like successful pitch emails. And so the email had several perfect looping GIFs in it to kind of <laughs> catch people's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it ended up working pretty well. So if, if you want my recommendation for people, if you're, you know, looking to get a publisher, and once again, you don't have to. Uh, we could talk a bit about like the advantages or not, but uh, if you do want a publisher, uh, I would say that would be my recommendation as these days there are so many games and we heard this from people. They would say like your pitch, you know, stood out um, because of those reasons. So if you want to stand out, that would be my recommendation is just put a lot of effort into a good pitch, make it as easy as possible for them to say yes. Like they want to, like what they want to know is they want to know, can you do this? Right. If I give you a bunch of money, will I actually see a game at the end of this? Or are you just right. going to like do nothing? Like that's probably their biggest fear from what I saw. So yeah. if you can assure them, you're like, look, we did this, 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 and this. This is our plan. We had like a plan. We knew exactly how what the development milestones would be. We knew exactly how much money it was going to cost. We I had done an analysis of puzzle games. I think I had done analysis of like 300 uh, to figure out what like the average, you know, expected kind of profit might be, like the sales and all that stuff. So I had laid it out to them and to just be like, look, it will be easy for you to say yes. So you should say yes. <laughs> and it's it's visually awesome. So I'm sure it wasn't a, a super difficult uh, task to get eyes on the project. And I'm I'm glad you guys are ready to sort of knock it out uh, once the discussion started. So it's it's very cool. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but we're going to get cut off in about a minute. So uh, go ahead and uh, let listeners know where they can check out the project and, uh, you know, your personal accounts, anything you want to uh, go with. Go ahead, uh, Curtis. So you can go to RecursiveRuin.com and you can go to, we've got a Steam page. So just find Recursive Ruin on Steam. Those would definitely be the best places to go. Please wishlist our game. It would make me very happy. It would make Chad very happy. Um, Chad has snakes. It'll make Chad's snakes very happy. You can also <laughs> find us on Twitter, uh, you know, Recursive Ruin, BitRock Games, uh, Dr. Chad McKinney and Dr. Kurt McKinney on Twitter. Very cool. Thank you both so much. Uh, this will be awesome. And uh, I'll follow up with both of you offline. Uh, thanks again for reaching out and best of luck with Recursive Ruin. Recursive Ruin. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much for having us on. It's it's been a pleasure. Yes, awesome. I really appreciate it. Okay, big thanks to Curtis and Chad McKinney. Check out Recursive Ruin. I messed that up in the interview. Again, so sorry. That's ridiculous. Recursive Ruin from BitRot by way of Iceberg Interactive, which is an awesome publisher as well. If you enjoy Game Dev Breakdown, check out show notes at CodeWritePlay.com. Check out the Game Dev Breakdown channel on YouTube, where you can see video shows and watch us sit around and make stupid faces at each other. My book, Inside Video Game Creation, out now on Amazon. 
Podcast ratings and reviews, please, everybody. If you want to do just one thing, hit follow on Spotify. We are seven follows away from 1,000 followers on Spotify. Thank you, thank you to those who hit follow since last time because we were much farther away. We're almost halfway from last week to our goal now. And uh, thank you guys so much for the support. Matt, what's up on the streams? Streams will definitely be back for blood. We are still grinding the new season of Call of Duty Black Ops' Battle Pass. It's been going super well and it looks like they have some it's the time of season obviously where everybody's trying to do like a halloween event in their game be it overwatch <laughs> if it's call of duty be it uh i'm pretty sure minecraft dungeons has some stuff going on as well i'm trying to think back for blood is just you know zombies that's halloween all day long so right. you can't get away from that one yeah i'm trying to hit as many of those as we can and just enjoying what free time me and the wife get doing things like that so Definitely back for blood. Definitely Call of Duty, and we'll see what else time presents us with. Getting okay. close to that 150 follower mark for the year. I'm rocking about 144, so try and hit 150 before the year's end and bringing that home. Get this guy to 150. Awesome. So for Code Right Play and Game Dev Breakdown and Matt Hill, Todd Mitchell here saying thanks, everybody. We will see you, talk to you next week. Later. <laughs> <laughs>